I want you to imagine with me a culture where the percentage of men who say they have solicited prostitutes was near 20%, where the average age people entered into sexual relationships was 16 years old and dropping, where the average number of lifetime sex partners averages 14, where one-third of the Christians of this culture had no problem with couples living together before marriage, and 82% of the non-Christians believe the same where one quarter of this population will have contracted a sexually transmitted disease at one point in their lives. Of course, you don't have to imagine those statistics come straight from our country, but I wanna share something with you this morning as we continue this study in the letter to Ephesians. They could have just as easily come from the city of Ephesus. In fact, do a historical study and you're gonna discover Ephesus, which is to the place where this letter was written that we're studying, is one of the most lewd cities throughout the Greek world. It was known for its sensuality. Archaeologists report that the very first advertisement ever discovered in ancient history, the first advertisement, what do you think it was for? It was for a brothel in the city of Ephesus. Beyond that, Ephesus was the home of the Temple of Artemis, who was the goddess of fertility. And what they would do in worshiping this goddess were all kinds of sexual acts, prostitution and the like. I say this because I want to set a context for us because one of the things I hear so often today is this book that we're going to be studying this morning that was written some 2,000 years ago cannot have any relevance for us still today. It's outdated. It can't speak possibly to the same issues that our culture, that the church is facing today. And I just want to say, that's just not true. The the city of Ephesus would make us blush in many ways, to be honest with you. And, And there were Christians living in this city who were being confronted with the very same things we're being confronted with today, if not worse. And so listen, I'm just saying, this isn't outdated. This stuff isn't irrelevant. It's just as relevant for us today as it was for the people living in Ephesians, in Ephesus. So it's not surprising to us that a significant section of Paul's letter to the church at Ephesus is going to focus on raising the church's moral standards in this area of sexuality. As we're going to see this morning, Paul is going to insist that Christians live holy lives, even if the culture which we are living in is not holy. God's moral standards and sexuality and other areas, we've looked at other areas in this, in this section as well, right? They're very high. They're high for the people living in Ephesus, and they're still high for us today. I heard an illustration several weeks ago that I think might be very helpful for us. I have a picture up on the screen. Can you uh, kind of tell me what that is? Double yellow lines, right? What does it mean when you're driving and you come across double yellow lines? No passing. Stay in your lane, Right? Now, here's the more important question. What do you think when you see double yellow lines? There's really two responses we could have to double yellow lines, really two. One is to look at those double lines and say, how dare those people try to impinge on my freedom? How dare they try to repress me? I want to be able to drive the roads, man. I want to be able to drive freely in this world. How dare they set these lines in my life? Or number two is, I'm really glad they put those lines there because they're there to protect me. Somebody values my life. And so they've put these double lines in this road. Now, uh, uh, what has happened, friends, is that when we hear come to issues of sexual sin, I hear people talking about all the time. They'll say, here we go again. 
This is all the church can talk about. That's the trouble with the Christian religion. It represses people. It's uptight about sex. It has a negative view about sex. Everything is wrong unless a man and a woman are married. Then you can have sex. Good night. How outdated. And so listen, here's what's happened. Many people, including many Christians, have taken what are double yellow lines in Scripture and they've turned it into this. I think we have another picture. All right. I'm going to take this double yellow line that is clearly here in God's word, and I'm going to turn it into a passing lane thing instead. Now, here's the only question I want to ask you. What if those double yellow lines God gives us in this area of sexuality, and others as well, are not there to repress us? What if they are actually there to protect us? What if he actually values our life? Tim Keller gives a similar illustration that I found very helpful. He says, what if you were the director of an art museum? Just imagine that. You're a director of an art museum, and somebody gave you the Mona Lisa. How would you react to it? Would you say, well, I don't want to have any rules or regulations about who sees it or bothers with security. It doesn't matter. In fact, I'm just going to put it out in the front yard so that anybody can see it and do whatever they want with it. Is that what you would do with a priceless piece of art? Of course not. What would you do if you were the director of that art museum? What you would do is you'd have incredible security around the Mona Lisa. You'd have all kinds of rules about who could see it and how they could see it. You see, the more artistically sensitive you are, the more careful you would be about that piece of art. And you'd be extremely upset if anybody broke those rules. Why? Now, here's the key. It's what I love. He says, is it because you have a negative view of art? No, it's because you actually have an incredibly positive view of art. You want to protect what is sacred. In the same way to say that Christianity has a negative view of sex is a complete misunderstanding. The truth is, God actually has an incredibly positive view of sex. He created it, after all. He gave it to us as a gift. We were, if you were here two summers ago, God even wrote an entire book on the joy of sexual intimacy that can be had in a covenant relationship between a man and a woman called the Song of Solomon. Were you here for that? But in order to experience the positive side of that, there must also be some protections and warnings. In order to have the joy of sex, God has given double yellow lines for us to follow, not to repress us, but to protect us. We either believe what the Bible says about this area and other areas as well. I don't want to just focus, but we're talking about this this morning. We either believe it and therefore live according to that, or we turn it into a passing lane for us. Let me back up a minute. If you haven't been with us, it's getting all heavy in here already, isn't it? We are in a series in the book of Ephesians called In Christ. And right now, we are in this lengthy section of this letter that started all the way back in chapter 4, where Paul is essentially calling Christians, those who are in Christ, to a higher standard of living. It started way back in chapter 4, verse 1, when Paul encouraged us, I love these words, to live a life worthy of your calling. Now, what calling has the Christian been given? Well, we talked all last spring about the calling, the identity we've been given in Jesus Christ. All these incredible things, not the least of which is Jesus loves me. This I know, for the Bible tells me so. We've been given these amazing gifts in Jesus, but then a shift takes place in chapter 4, if you've been with us through this series. And it's this, behavior, our behavior is the result of our identity. So my belief about who I am is going to result in certain kinds of behavior. And call, Paul is calling out this behavior for believers. And in the last three weeks, we've gotten into the nitty-gritty of this. 
We've been in this section in Ephesians where Paul is telling the Christians to put off the things that hinder you from becoming like Jesus Christ because that is God's goal for you. Instead, put on the things. Put on the things that you have now in Jesus. As we have been saying each week in this section, and I just want to repeat this as much as I can, these aren't just rules for us to follow. Putting off these things, we don't put off these things just because these are bad things. We're putting off these things because that's the natural thing we're going to do if we are in a relationship with Jesus Christ. If that's my identity, I am a new creation in Christ Jesus, it's going to be natural for me to begin to look like him. And so I'm going to put off the things that are going to keep me looking like him. But all this is to say, we have a part to play. You have a part to play. I have a part to play in becoming like Jesus. I'm not going to drift into Christ-likeness. A lot of people think, if I just come to church every Sunday, I'm eventually going to become more like Jesus. No, no, no. We have a part to play in our daily life, putting off those things that are going to hinder me from becoming more like Jesus. That's why we've been saying every week in this series, belief and behavior always go hand in hand. Always. You can't have one without the other, but listen, make sure you get the order right. Believe what is true about yourself, and when you know what is true about yourself, your behavior will follow. Because this is who I am, this is how I will now live. So all this to say, we're in this section where we've been given all these codes of conduct saying, hey, you need to put off things like lying and anger and stealing and unwholesome talk and malice. And I just want to tell you again, it's not Paul saying, don't do these things because you'll be a really naughty person if you do. It's Paul saying, you put off these things because that's no longer who you are. That's no longer who you are in Jesus Christ. Remember who you really are. Change your mind about these things. This morning is really just a continuation of all these things that Paul has been talking about that we need to put off as Christians. And we're going to see sexual sin is one of those things. I just say right up front, it's not any worse than any of the other ones we've talked about the last three weeks, right? It's not on like a separate category or another pedestal. It's just one other thing that can keep us from becoming more like Jesus. Now, before we get to this, I love this. Paul is actually first going to talk about the positive. He's going to talk about what we can put on now that we are in Christ. So why don't you take your Bible, turn it to Ephesians chapter 5, starting in verse 1. If you didn't bring a Bible, we always have some in the seat either underneath you or in front of you there, and you can find Ephesians 5.1 on page 816, 816. I know Michelle already prayed uh, for me and for this time together, but would you mind if we do that once again? Uh, we, need, we need his help this morning. I know I do. Lord, you know I don't really want to talk about this. And I'm sure there are people in this room who don't really want to hear about this. And yet we want to be faithful, faithful to your word. And so we open up these pages of scripture with humble hearts, with eyes to see, ears to hear. Father, my biggest prayer is that I can speak your truth with a humble spirit. So help us, help me in Jesus' name, amen. Paul begins verse 1 of chapter 5, friends, with one of the most incredible statements in all of Scripture. Read it out loud with me on your notes. It says, Therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children. Let me just let that sink in for you a little bit. 
be imitators of God. This is the only place in the Bible where these words occur, occur, and what makes them so startling is they hold up a standard of living to which there is no other. Imitate God. You want to live the Christian life? Imitate God. Well, how do you do that? Well, interestingly enough, that word imitate in the Greek, which is what the New Testament was written in, is where we get our word mimic. It's mimic. What does it mean to mimic someone? It means you say what they say and you do what they do, right? If you have children, you know what mimicking is. They either do it to each other to annoy each other, or quite honestly, this is how children learn. They mimic us as their parents early on in life. It's a part of their whole development process. This got me thinking of some fond memories uh, back when our kids were younger. Uh, Will, our son, he used to, every time I'd go and mow the lawn, he would mimic me. He would get out his little plastic lawnmower and he would literally follow in my path. In fact, I got a little picture of Will here. (laughs) Do not tell him I showed you this picture. He would be super embarrassed uh, at this point. Uh, But that's mimicking. He's mimicking me. He would just follow in my path. And we're told here, as Christians, we are to mimic God, to say what he says and to do what he does. And of course, I look at that and I go, that's impossible. And you're right, it is impossible on my own. But did you see the rest of the verse? As beloved children. Mimic God as his beloved children. If you are in Christ, we learned this last spring, you are one of God's children. That means you have God's DNA in you now. You have his very spirit in your life. So it's not impossible for me to mimic God. He's given me everything I need to mimic him, to say the things he says, to do the things he does. Friends, I just got to say to you, if you really want to grow in Christ, a really great start is this whole concept of I'm going to imitate him. I'm going to imitate Jesus like him. You say, I'm not exactly like him, but I'm going to act like him. I'm going to dress myself up like him. I'm going to follow his example. I'm going to interact with people the way he did. I'm going to do what he did. You remember about 15 years ago or so, those bracelets that were so popular, WWJD? They kind of fell out of favor a little bit. They became kind of cheesy. But that's literally what we're being told to do here. Do you really want to grow in Christ? Do you want to live a life worthy of your calling? Then every day for the life of the believer is an opportunity for you to wake up in the morning and say, what would it look like if you lived your life through me today, Jesus? What would you do in this situation I'm in right now? How would you speak to this person in my life? Because you are in Christ, because Christ is in you. Listen, this is so mysterious to me. We are literally bringing Christ into every interaction of our lives. He's in me, so I'm bringing him with me. And I can ask this question, what would he do? How could I mimic Jesus in this relationship? Again, pointing out here, this is way different than simply waking up in the morning and saying, give me the rules, Jesus. Give me the codes of conduct. I'm going to try my hardest not to break any rules today. That is religion. That is not a relationship with Christ. The Christian life is becoming like Jesus, mimicking not just following moral rules. We are literally bringing Christ to others. That blows my mind. Of course, there are many things about God, about Jesus that I can't imitate. I, for example, have not yet mastered omnipresence. I can't be everywhere at once yet, nor have I mastered omnipotence. I'll never have those things. I, as long as I live in this earthly body, 
will never be free from sin as Jesus was. So what is Paul talking about when he encourages us to mimic God? Well, he gives us the answer in verse 2. Walk in the way of love. Just as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us as a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. It's not just any old attribute of Christ that we're to mimic. What are we to mimic? His love. His love. Love is the very essence of God. 1 John 4, 8. God is love. And love is to be the main feature of a Christian's walk. Now, I really like that word walk. It's the second time Paul has used it, and I just think it's a good time for me to pause here and talk a little bit more about that really quickly because we are in this section of Scripture right now that every week you can feel like we're just like bringing the hammer down, right? Like, I, I, I get angry, I lie, I, I, oh my goodness, I feel like such a failure. Let me just remind you why Paul uses a word like walk because the Christian life is not about perfection. It's about making progress, Walking towards Christ-likeness in my life, right? I'm walking. I'm walking. Will there be stumbling? Yes. Will I fall on occasion? Yes. Will I walk backwards on occasion? Yes. But the point is, God's not looking for perfection. He is looking for progress, however. And specifically, he's looking for us to walk in the way of love. Our lives should begin to look more and more like Jesus if we are truly Christians, especially how we treat others. It will be natural for us to begin to love like Jesus loved if Jesus is in me. It's as simple as that. How important is love in the Bible? Jesus said in the Gospels that people will come to know him because of the way we model love to one another. Kind of important. Just like children copy their parents, we are to imitate Jesus in the way he loved others. And how did Jesus love you? How did he love you? He gave himself for you. If I could use one word to describe the kind of love Jesus showed that we should mimic, it's this selfless, self-giving, putting others ahead of myself kind of love, self-sacrifice. That kind of love is pleasing to God, we're told at the end of verse 2. Literally, it said, when we love the way Jesus did, our lives give off this fragrant offering that is pleasing to God. And listen, as one of God's children, I want nothing more than to please my Father. I want to stand before him one day and have my father say to me, well done, well done. So to sum this up, for those who are in Christ, we are called to imitate God, and that means putting on the kind of love towards others Jesus loved us with. This is good news for me. I hope it is for you too. I can begin to walk in the way of love. Will I stumble? Yes, but I can make progress, and I can begin to love people like Jesus did. But in order to do that, I find it fascinating where Paul goes, starting in verse 3. He goes from telling the Ephesian believers to put on love to now telling them to put off those cheap imitations of love that this world offers. In other words, Paul turns from self-sacrifice to the very opposite, selfishness, lust. Look at verse 3. But among you there must not even be a hint of sexual immorality or any kind of impurity or of greed because these are improper for God's holy people. Nor should there be obscenity, foolish talk, or coarse joking, which are out of place, but rather thanksgiving. See how he returns again to this theme of put off? He says, put on love, like Jesus loved others, but put off these cheap imitations of love that the world offers, these distortions of love. Indeed, did you notice in verse 3, he says, there shouldn't even be a hint of this. 
in the believer's life? Does God take purity seriously? These are double yellow line things. So let's take a look at the six things we're to put off as Christians, these double yellow lines when it comes to sexuality. Can I just stop, though, and tell you two things? First of all, can I remind us who these words are written to? Who is Paul writing to right now? This is really important. The church. He's not writing to the Roman government. He's not writing to the United States of America. He's writing to the church, his body. It's so important when we read these kinds of words that we remember that because we start to get in trouble when we think like these words should then apply to anybody within our reach, within our grasp. No, these are for people who are in Christ. This is for the church. So number one, let's just remember that. That'll save us from a lot of trouble, I think. A lot of judgmentalism. Number two, I just got to be honest with you and say I really struggled whether or not to share specific examples as we go through these things. It'd be really easy for me not to have done that. I would have rather done that. But I don't know how helpful that would have been. And so I'm going to share some examples. And I want to say up front, some of the things I'm going to talk about aren't necessarily double line things. I'm going to all mention that when we get there. They're passing lane things, perhaps. They're Romans 14 type things. But I don't think this can become real to us unless we get specific. But man, I just want to do that with the utmost humility. So here we go. The first thing Paul tells us to put off is sexual immorality. This is the most common word in the Bible to describe sexual sin. You can find it in a number of places in the New Testament. It is the word porneia, from which we get our word pornography. But it is not referring in Greek to pictures we can look at on computers or magazines. The definition of porneia is any sexual intercourse outside of a marriage covenant made between a man and a woman. That's the definition. It is pretty much the overarching word that encompasses every sexual sin. Paul gets more specific with the second word, impurity. This word includes sexual sins related to porneia, but it probably goes beyond it to conclude, include specific practices. I mentioned in the beginning the Greeks, among whom the Ephesians lived, openly approved of practices such as prostitution, homosexuality, pederasty, and other things I prefer not to mention. This word impurity covers these things. But Paul says that what is perfectly acceptable in the surrounding society should not even be hinted at among Christians. The culture, listen, the culture doesn't define our values. God defines our values. Third, we are to put off greed. At first glance, it looks like Paul is talking about a whole different thing here, like money or something, right? But actually what he's talking about is this natural desire. Once we get into these things in our lives that we just need more and more and more of it. It's selfish indulgence in sexual things. Pornography at its heart is greed. It's this, this, I need more of it. That's why it's an addiction, right? It's an addiction because I've got to have more of it. I've got to have more of it. I'm using somebody instead of loving somebody. It's the opposite of love. It's what Jesus talks about when he calls it adultery in the heart, where we're not caring for another person at that point. We're only caring about ourselves, and we're using that person to fulfill our own desires. It's all selfish. We are to put that off. Now, I just got to say If you've read the statistics about pornography in the church, we've got some work to do in this. It's a real issue that must be confronted. The next three things Paul encourages the Christian to put off all have to do with our mouth. Isn't this interesting? 
These could all be included in what Jeff talked about last week as spew, or ew, spew. Here, Paul is specifically thinking about the kind of spew that we can speak when it comes to sexuality. Obscenity, number one, refers to indecent or offensive speech. It refers to somebody who has no regard for moral standards. Here's a good way to think about it. They have no filter. Nothing is off limits on what they can talk about. I used to work construction, and some of the guys used to love to listen to Howard Stern. He had no limits about what he could talk about. Foolish talk is the next one. This comes from the Greek word, I like this, morologia. It's where we get our word moron. For us, the word moron means someone who talks like a fool. But the concern here, I got to tell you, it's not about intelligence. It's not about somebody's IQ. It's with morals. This word is referring to a person who makes light of high moral standards, thinking it's somehow funny or sophisticated to tear down things that are pure. I have seen an example of this. I'll give you another example. I've seen things written about Tim Tebow or Lolo Jones, who are two athletes, who have basically said, you know, I'm going to save myself until marriage. This is what God has intended for my life. And people tear them down. I've read, I've read things that people tearing them down for that decision, making light of a decision like that. Coarse joking is closely related to both of those, but the emphasis there is on the kind of vulgar humor that makes light of sexuality, and honestly, it debases the dignity of men and women for the sake of a laugh. It's really quiet in here right now. It doesn't take much to see that all six of these things are everywhere in our culture today, does it? I know many of you are bombarded with raunchy jokes or crude language in your workplace every day. Our friends, at 12 noon, football begins. And with football comes commercials. And on these commercials, seriously, you can see all six of these things being displayed for us. HBO has coined a phrase, tasteful nudity, in describing its shows. Well, if it's tasteful, it must be okay. All of this stuff, I'm just saying, all of this has just become so normal in our society. Just like it was for the Ephesians. Just like it was for the Ephesians. But the word of God is crystal clear. This is a double line stuff. We are not to read, watch, talk about, participate in immoral activity or immoral speech, no matter how normal it has become in our culture. Now, the big question for us today, and I know you feel this, I'm sure you do because I do, is how do I put off these things without having a holier-than-thou attitude? You know what I'm talking about? How do I live a life of purity without coming off as prudish or judgmental? Part of the answer of how we do that goes back to the very beginning on this whole section in Ephesians chapter 4. Remember, Paul says, live a life worthy of the gospel. What's the very first thing he tells us to do? What's the first thing we do to live this life? He says in Ephesians 4 two, be completely humble and gentle. Be patient, bearing with one another in love. So part of the answer, friends, is that we put these things off while at the same time putting on humility and gentleness and patience and most of all, as we saw already again this morning, love, love. But that doesn't mean we don't need to put these things off, so let me get practical. The dirty jokes start flying at the water cooler. It's not your job to be the language police. 
Perhaps the response of humility would simply be to smile and excuse yourself from the conversation. Man, I did that all the time when the guys turned on Howard Stern. I don't think they felt condemned or judged by the way I responded to them. They just knew I was uncomfortable with that. Or maybe it means quietly deciding in your home that you're going to not watch TV shows or go to movies that make light of these things. I know my wife and I have decided, we've decided together, we're not going to watch rated R movies, especially if they're rated R because of these things. Now listen, is that a double-line thing? No! It's a Romans 14 thing. It's a passing lane thing. Make sure you hear me say that. That's just a decision we've made. I can tell you, I don't regret that decision, though. I'm glad I'm not pumping in stuff in my mind that lingers there for weeks and months and even years sometimes. Or maybe it means getting a filter on your computer finally. Stop the excuses and get an accountability. Maybe it means no longer supporting businesses that advertise using this kind of approach. Again, you might think I'm crazy here, but I do not eat at Hardee's. I refuse to eat at Hardee's. Have you seen those ads? Is that a double line thing? I want you to hear it. Is that a double line thing? Can you eat at Hardee's? Yes. Will I judge you if I see you in the drive-thru lane at Hardee's? <laughs> no. Because as soon as I do that, friends, I'm not loving the way Jesus loved. It's a, it's a decision I've made in my life. Okay? Perhaps the best thing for me just to say at this point is to go back to what I talked about earlier, WWJD. Perhaps in all these things, the best question we could ask ourselves is, would Jesus watch this? Because here's what's crazy to think about. If you're a Christian, he is if you are. Would Jesus speak this way? Would Jesus have this relationship? Would Jesus support this kind of activity? I know what many of you are thinking in this room right now. Oh, come on. You are taking this way too far. Friends, this is what I am so glad as one of the pastors of this church that we preach through the scripture, not our own ideas. I rest on the authority of God's word. And we just read, be imitators of God. Be holy as he is holy. Don't settle for cheap imitations of love that debase sex and make it into an ultimate thing. Instead, love others like Jesus Love them. Just to be clear that these aren't my ideas, look at how Paul ends this section starting in verse 5. You want to talk about sobering language. For of this you can be sure. No immoral, impure, or greedy person. Who's he talking to? People in the church. No immoral, impure, or greedy person. Such a person is an idolater. In other words, an idol is something that we place above God. Has sex been placed above God? Oh, my goodness. Has any inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God? Now, really important here, you listen and focus right now. What Paul is not saying right now is that any person who stumbles one time or a few times in these sins has any inheritance in the kingdom of God. Who he's talking to, in my opinion right here, somebody, some people differ, he's talking to proclaimed Christians who see no problem in constantly crossing God's double lines that he's given us in Scripture. Paul says, you can be sure the kingdom is not in them. Because if Jesus is in them, they would begin walking away from those kinds of things. The Christian life is not perfection. Will we fall in this area? Oh my goodness, we will. I will. But it is a walk. 
It is a walk in the direction of Christ-likeness, not away from Christ-likeness, which is what he's describing here. Sadly, we hear it even in churches today, we've progressed past this stuff. This is prudish. Times have changed. We don't need to shackle ourselves with these outdated notions of sex. Did you know Paul even addressed that? Look at verses 6 and 7. Read it out loud with me there on your notes. Don't be fooled by those who try to excuse these sins, for the anger of God will fall on all who disobey him. Don't participate in the things these people do. That word anger is the same word used for wrath, which simply means God, because he is a holy God in his very nature, will oppose these things. It's his nature. Don't let those then, specifically people in the church, who are trying to make this into a passing lane thing, fool you. God's standard for purity hasn't changed just because our culture wants to change it. We are, as verse 3, and this is where I want to end, God's holy people. Holy just means that you've been set apart. We are his set apart ones. Talk about an amazing identity. I have been set apart as God's holy person by God's grace alone, right? Nothing I have done to deserve that. It doesn't make me better than anybody to be one of God's set apart people. The moment I start thinking I'm better than people, I'm not loving them the way Jesus loved them. But it does mean that I believe and follow what God says about purity here because belief and behavior always go hand in hand for the Christian. If I believe I am set apart, I will put these things off. Again, it's not, I will follow these rules so that God likes me more. I will put these things off because I've already been set apart by my loving Father. I gotta tell you, I gotta tell you, there's nothing I think that will set us apart more today that will make us stand out more today than upholding God's standards of love and purity in this area. You guys know by now, I think that I really like Christian history. I like studying church history. Historians will tell you there were two ways that the early Christians, I'm talking about this era of Christians, completely stuck out like sore thumbs in the Greco-Roman society. There were two ways they were set apart, and there were two, these two ways are what really drew people to Jesus. One is that they only had sex inside of marriage. The Greeks thought this was the weirdest thing they had ever heard. Sound familiar? Secondly, they were incredibly generous with their money and time, both in dealing with each other's needs, but also in caring for the poor. They just never seen people who cared for the poor like these early Christians did. Now, I don't think it's very different for us today, do you? Is sexual sin one of the areas that we can stand out like sore thumbs in our culture today? Oh my goodness, yes it is. Will people think we're weird? Will we be mocked? Will we be ridiculed? I was. My entire high school life was one big mockery. But will there also be people who have been so hurt by the unchecked sexual culture going on in our community, been so hurt, who have been run over by a culture that has turned sex into an idol, that they see some hope and joy in us that might draw them closer to Jesus. Is that possible? But for that to happen, there has to be a place and a time in my life where where I say, I am one of God's set-apart people. And because I am, I'm going to put these things off. So, here we are. Where are you with this? 
Maybe today is the day before God that you will determine to deliberately put off immorality, impurity, greed, obscenity, foolish talk, coarse joking in your life. You're going to walk in the way of love and not settle for cheap imitations of it. Maybe you need to take another look at the movies or the TV programs you watch. Take another stuff. Look at the stuff you allow in your home, the magazines you read, the computer screens you click on, and ask yourself this very simple question. Are these things enhancing my walk towards Christ-likeness, or are they hindering it? Maybe you need to take a look. This is hard at your relationships. Have you crossed some double yellow lines? Friends, I'm willing to bet, and I just want to say this up front, I'm willing to bet there's not one of us in this room, including me, who hasn't fallen in this area. So the last thing you should be thinking right now is he's talking directly to me. But I want to remind you again, the Christian life is not perfection. It is a walk. It is a walk towards Jesus, and I want you to remember there is grace. Always there is grace. There is forgiveness, and there is strength at the foot of the cross. There is not ever condemnation. There is not ever shame. Now, there could be some conviction going on this morning. I know as somebody who has had to speak this two times now and deal with it all week, there's been a lot of conviction You want to know the difference between conviction and condemnation, though? Conviction has a hope to it. Conviction is a call by Jesus to say, put that stuff off. You can do it and walk with me. Condemnation says, you're a failure. You'll never be able to figure this stuff out. You'll never be able to put this stuff off. So we can come to Jesus for strength and forgiveness and grace, and he will give it to us. But we also have a role to play, and that's what I'm trying to get at this morning. We have a role to play. So there might be some things we need to put off in our life, friends. And as we enter into a time of reflection, again, I might have preached this message 12 years ago and given you six things that you should do as a result of these things. And I've kind of decided at this point, because our God is a personal God, he'll show up in these times and give you maybe one or two things that he wants you to do that might not be the same thing he's asking everybody else to do. So that's why, once again, we're going to end this morning by just some time of silence some time of prayer. Maybe you need to spend time confessing. Confession isn't a bad thing. It's a cleaning thing. It's a place where we can come at the foot of the cross and receive from Jesus new strength and new hope. Maybe you need to think of it in a positive terms and just dwell on this idea that I'm a set-apart one. I'm a set-apart one. I believe that about myself. I'm a set-apart one. Maybe that's God's word to you this morning. As we go into this time, I want to read a prayer written hundreds of years ago. And it might sound a little foreign to you, but I found this so helpful. It's from a book called The Valley of Vision. So why don't you close your eyes and let me pray for you as we enter into this time. Blessed Spirit, author of all grace and comfort, Come, work repentance in my soul. Represent sin to me in its odious colors that I may hate it. Melt my heart by the majesty and mercy of God. Show me my ruined self and the help there is in him. Teach me to behold my creator, his ability to save, his arms outstretched, his heart big for me. 
May I confide in his power and love, commit my soul to him without reserve, bear his image, observe his laws, pursue his service, and be through time and eternity a monument to the efficacy of his grace, a trophy of his victory. Help me not only to receive him, but to walk in him, depend upon him, commune with him, be conformed to him, follow him imperfectly, but still pressing forward. Amen.